0: It's, I mean, it is still January, but it's the last. It's the last Wednesday of January now. I think it is. I think, it I is. think you're right. I on think it's that. February next week. Yep. Yeah,
1: yeah. And you had a big January present. <laughs>
2: yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, we were we were in the um, uh, Royal Women's at um, uh, one in, one in the morning on New Year's uh, Day. and New Year's Eve as well, um, welcoming our. Um, latest addition to the family in the world into the world
1: congratulations (laughs) thank you
0: very
3: much congratulations how's it
0: been at home uh look uh settling time um we've also got a two and a half year old and she is very much enjoying her little brother um poking him, slapping him in the face, telling him how much she loves him while kissing him so much that he wakes up all the time. Um, yeah, she's, she's a great great big sister so far. I think, I think these are her duties, so she's, um, she's tending to them
3: well. Yeah. Oh, good to, hear. good to hear your voice back here as well, Nick. Good to be back with you both. Yeah. <laughs> and you bring in the good weather. There's some good weather heading up across Melbourne. And- good weather? I think it's gone chaotic. Like I, I keep. I've been looking at the weather
0: report every day because I'm off to Rainbow Serpent Festival this weekend. Out in the dust, out in the heat, and Saturday and Sunday are both going to be 39 unless that's changed has it changed this morning Paddy? what are we looking for <laughs>
3: tiny bit um, my where i'm looking at right now it's saying saturday sunday 36 38 <gasps> that's a bit better. but yeah it might be different out in rainbow serpent it's a little it's bit more um, deeper in victoria yeah towards the north where all that heat comes what from? are you doing out at
0: rainbow uh, a number of things um we'll be volunteering uh, with uh, one of the um, crowd care programs uh presenting a panel that will be recorded for uh, in psychedelia Sunday's two PM on three CR. Um, that uh that should be in a couple of weeks time. We'll we'll have the recording ready for that. Um And, geez, it feels like there's something else. I'm still trying to figure out. We've got to get a couple of people, um, Dr David Caldicott and Professor Fiona Misham, Fiona Misham visiting from the UK right now. uh, And she, uh, over there, heads up a program called The Loop where they have been uh, successfully and and with permission of the the government uh, and no... uh, uh, no shutdowns by police or anything like that. They, they've been doing a professional pill testing program. Um, oh,
1: that's, that should be really interesting to have her. That she's going to be at the festival. Well, or on. <laughs> uh, I'm still. still I'm the one organising a
0: transport. So, oh, I see. Um, yeah, <laughs> yes. it's fallen on me at the last moment. Um, yeah, she should be there. Um, and, and at the moment, she's been in New South Wales, up in Sydney, uh, working with Will Triguning from Unharm, a uh, organisation up there, uh, to meet with uh, police, a number of police officers, to meet with health professionals as well. Uh, and talk to them about how the program works. Just to sort of, I, I think one of the one of the big uh, barriers um, is how many people we really need to be educated on exactly what it is, because it's so easy for misinformation. Uh, oh, I, th- I on these think issues so. I think spread. it'd
1: be yeah, I think it'd be quite tricky, and you'd need to be fairly careful. But really important program.
0: Exactly. That's why you mm. need people that are professionals that have done it before and seen it in action yes, to exactly. explain it to
3: those uh, who have fears over what exactly this would look like. Yes. Done. But you've also been busy, and the show has been busy behind the scenes. We've got a big show coming up.
1: Yeah, we do. Um, later in the show, we'll be speaking to um, James Trezise, who's um, from a, a group called Places You Love Alliance, which is made up of all the big environmental groups here in Australia, and they're very concerned about the uh, draft strategy the federal government has released, and it's called a strategy for nature. So you'll all be, your hearts will be warmed to know that the federal government has put out a a draft strategy for nature, all 17 pages of it for uh, for our consultation. Anyway, more about that later. And also we're going to be speaking to um, Dr. Uh, Amelia Ems from Macquarie, and she's been really involved in the Aboriginal ranger program. And uh, actually, won a Eureka Prize for citizen science last year as well, one of her projects. So, yeah, looking forward to that.
3: Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing that as well, Judith. Mm. And then before that, we'll be hearing from Husandia about tech diplomacy and the different way governments are approaching that.
1: Yes, I thought that looked amazing. I'm so, I'm very excited. I got excited. Is, is
0: Estonia <laughs> included in there anywhere? Tech diplomacy? Am I, am I thinking technological diplomacy here? Or yeah, you are, you are. Uh, well, Estonia is an interesting place as far as uh,
3: uh, technology goes. But if you're, that's all, <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. Hold, in on, yeah. hold on, hold <laughs> <laughs> on. We'll get someone who knows about it to come and yeah. speak to us.
1: Not that you don't. That's
3: <laughs> <laughs> so where your questions else? come in. And then we've got um, Kevin Russell to come in and talk to us. He's, got a, uh, he's the great grandson of William which is a pioneer into the fight for and establishing the morning day that happens on the 26th of January. And this wow. is the 80th anniversary. He also works for VACA, the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Protection Agency. Um, he does a lot of good work there and he has he runs a... Um, prison program there out of care and um, beyond survival so it'll be look forward to oh, hearing from great,
1: you. yeah it sounds wonderful mm.
3: but first on the program this morning on this
0: uh 24th day of january uh we're hearing from um, Hugo Frant or Hugo the Poet. Uh, Hugo has been involved with a number of uh, musical projects over the years uh, and he has an album that just got released, uh, I think it was just one week ago today. It's called Jail G A O L. so very Australian R now there. And Hugo has actually been working alongside some younger people over the past year in a role as a music teacher for younger people who are a bit disadvantaged to try and help... Uh, bring music into their lives to to help um help them uh with identity issues or all sorts of whatever issues they're going through but he 's also heard a number of stories and those stories have been the inspiration for this particular album so uh we 've got a couple of tracks from him and <coughs> and I caught up with him. Hey, 3CR
4: listeners, this is Hugo, a.k.a. Hugo the Poet. I'm here uh, introducing my latest album, which is called Jail Bars. Uh, Great to be with you and great to be supporting uh, community radio. Thank you, guys.
0: The new album is Jail Bars. Uh, just before we before we get into it, for anyone that wants to go and grab it right now, if they're sitting at a computer, how can you go and get the album?
4: Uh, Bandcamp. I'm on Bandcamp. Just
0: look up Hugo the Poet there on Bandcamp, and uh,
4: you you should find my profile. Uh, also, if that's confusing, go to Facebook. Um, hit hit up my. Artist page, again, Hugo the Poet. YouTube, Hugo the Poet. It's kind of, I'm kind of getting my branding a, a bit more consistent. You should be able to type into Google Hugo
0: the Poet and get to this album. And you're, um, some of the proceeds from the album you're planning on uh, donating to a few different organizations, which sort of links in with um, what the whole album is about, which yeah. is the, the theme of the album. I mean, it's jail bars. You're, you're talking about... Uh, crime issues, especially right. crime issues. Yeah,
4: crime and punishment, you could say. Um,
0: It's the year for it. (laughs) For sure, for sure. We've gone
4: all Dostoevsky. Um, yeah, it's an interesting time. And so it was uh, bizarre. I started work in a in a, in a youth uh, justice scenario in the education program and um, was working with boys inside to, to encourage them to do um, rap writing in a, in a way that might feed into their educational goals, um, because it can. It can contribute to their uh, VCAL if they write in a certain way. Um, but in order to do that, I had to kind of learn, you know, where these guys are at um, and, you know, kind of form a little bit of a relationship with them in order to get anything done at all and and part of that was learning you know what kind of music and influences they have fed into their lives and and um not, in, a, in a basic kind of way, how they've gotten to the situation that they've gotten to. Um, and a lot of that I found absolutely fascinating and eye-opening, not being um, from, well, let's lay it out on the table. I'm from a background of, of privilege in so many ways. So I wasn't, even though I wasn't like a massively well-behaved young man, um, none, you know, none of the consequences were ever that serious of, of, of what I did I didn't do anything too heinous but I also um, could have easily fallen through the traps in the same way that the, or the gaps in the same way that these lads have mm. if I'd been born into a, into a different situation um, that's a roundabout way of saying that uh, you know I was getting into this situation with these lads and I was absorbing um, certain influences of music and culture that they've been absorbing and I was trying to write lyrics that you know would would um, be somewhere in the realm of what they would find interesting, just to show that you know okay, I might be um, an egregious hippie from the north side of Melbourne, but um, you know i can i can I can get where you come from, I can write lyrics like this as well and um, without I, I can also write lyrics like this without necessarily going to the zones that. The, the music that they listen to goes to, which is, you know, um, a lot of glorification of crime and a lot of um, misogyny. There's no doubt that um, there's, you know, as we can look at the statistics and uh, that the Herald Sun refuses to look at and we can see that. Um, crime is basically going down in Victoria. Like there's mm. been great- almost every every um, area, almost except a, a couple. <laughs> uh, do you mean uh, do you mean geographic area or geographic and the type of crime? Yeah. It's true. Both of those things. Um, however, it's still a problem. We must not sit on our laurels. And and um, there is a, there is a problem with uh, you know any any amount of youth crime is a problem. Mm. Uh, this is not exclusive to Melbourne. It's not exclusive to the suburbs of Melbourne. It's a, it's a global phenomenon of youth crime. And I think that, um, you know, this type of music, this trap music is either a very, very good reflection of it or I, I actually legitimately think it can
0: have an influence on susceptible youth. Well, I mean, the, uh, all of these, the, uh, I mean, we're in the territory of uh, uh, how does the media that people consume yeah. affect their behaviour? Right. And this is, I mean, this is one of those um, long-running uh uh, arguments, debates that's been going on because it is a bit of a give and take. We, we know at one, at one point that there is this sort of imaginary world that we enter, yeah. um, with the creative, when we're consuming a creative something. So we're in this imaginary world, but also everything comes from our imagination. We don't build a building because it, it's in our imagination first. First, yeah, for sure. So everything comes from our imagination first. So it is always interesting what's going on in there. And um, on the album, you've got a couple of tracks that sort of um, uh, look into a few of these themes, not just the music, but also video games. Yeah, well, that's
4: right. So, you know, this is what I want to say from word go. I'm not saying that trap music and video games are a cause of crime um, or that they cause someone to commit crimes. What I'm saying... Is that um, for a certain sector of susceptible youth, they in com- in concert with other things, um, and you know, lack of privilege, lack of education, uh, lack of literacy, lack of rights, racism, um, broken families. In concert with those, they are they can be an element which um, encourages and um, or pushes someone over the edge to maybe maybe consider that that a, a crime is an exciting thing to do. Um,
0: in, in, at- s- in the same way sort of that uh, when you get uh, federal politicians saying that there 's this thing happening that 's not really happening it kind of creates the idea in people 's head and uh, that it 's okay to believe not only that this is happening but then to go and act as if it 's happening um, last week with with Peter Dutton um, speaking about African gang crisis in, yeah. in Melbourne um, and then I saw a video on uh, on Facebook the other day of uh, yeah. uh, just you know normal family guy who happened to be uh, yeah uh, you know uh, from Africa somewhere i don 't yeah. know where he was from exactly right. he was being polite to this toothless aggressive white guy yeah. who for no reason was just you know getting aggressive so these are the, the yeah. this is what happens he was a, of a
4: son of odin i believe <laughs> yeah i think i think, say I think that. odin's genetic line has been seriously hampered over the last several millennia the, all the inbreeding yeah it must be it must be must be
0: <laughs> so we yeah we do see this um uh this effect. Yes, there's action. no it doubt. Doesn't about it doesn't always happen that way, but right. we we are aware. I think
4: that's an interesting point you raise. Like anyone who says, you know, we, we can approach this from two angles. We can say like, hey, the right-wing press shouldn't put all the blame on video games or or, or trap music, whatever mm. it is. However, it's an element. It's an element of in my opinion concern. And on the flip side of that, look at the media that the the so-called mainstream of Australia is consuming. It doesn't get worse than the Channel 9 News or the Herald Sun. Like, it literally doesn't get worse in terms of something that is a negative influence on someone. So if we agree that that, you know, on both sides, if we agree that media can have an influence, then we agree that media can have an influence. Exactly. And, and, it, and it can have negative effects on, on, on people in all quarters.
5: Why would a young person that is 16, 15, 17 years old want to pick up a knife and just stab someone at random and have never met them before? Why would someone want to pick up a gun just because someone lives in a completely different postcode and be prepared to shoot it? Why would someone be prepared to kill a child on a school bus just because they're looking at them for ten seconds? And the fact of the matter is there's not one answer to answer why young people arrive at that particular point. There's actually a series of factors. This world is killing me, never wanted me. Once the rich but the
4: poor, it's just a lost cause that haunts their memory. If it wants nobility, then this song's a guillotine Decapitating all the white-collar mobsters who caused this constant villainy What choice did I have when the voice in my head was a serpent whispering the wrong soliloquy In my DNA, tempting me away from civility When all I got in the block was corrupted imagery Where the cops were enemy, the dealers, the government, robbery, link, and the squad, the military What could I do except respond with mimicry? I thought I could run with the demons and my psychological monsters still agree and I felt that any chance I may have had was lost officially Almost psychotic from the drugs they given me To cure me from the drugs I did in the streets I tried to see the light, but I was too lit They said me
6: to fight, but I was too deep They told me stand up straight, but I
4: was on the lean One last chance to reclaim responsibility I was brought from civil war in one nation And dropped in the slums of another Where the law was puny And breaking it just seemed to be another form of amusement I was lied to by music Given drugs to be dealt Got hooked when I took them myself to deal with the pain of my survivor's guilt. I was born, raised from the original people, indigenous, inheritor of 60,000 year continuous history, better seed of the land's intelligence. Somewhere along the line, my blood was mixed with the colonists by sick rape, so I'm mixed race, rejected by society, and my community refuses to identify me. I'm white, angry, and been addicted to drugs since the maternity hospital. My brain never developed properly to overcome obstacles. School was impossible. I dealt drugs, got in fights, and learned how to jack cars, cook ice. And give any enemies tomahawk axe scars Allahu Akbar God is great and protects us But in this land the dominant culture hates and rejects us So we stick together and plot steadily carving out a plot Money, power, influence we get in a lot And when older men tell you to take the time for a crime that they drop You don't hesitate, you confess on the spot When I first heard hip-hop, finally that itch That could never be scratched, was soothed by the mix The pitch, the lyrics, the bass, the beats All reflected my sitch The words give me power and steadily teach Me that I'm at least better than any woman, so I get to call her a bitch If the trauma of my child abuse Means I'm never confiding in use The ones I should have been able to trust Are the very ones who tied up my noose So fuck trust, I'll never trust trust Or anyone who believes it exists And I'll sabotage all relationships To prove that everyone's a piece of shit I tried to see the light
6: But I was too lit They said flee the fight But I was too deep They told me stand up straight But I was on the lean
4: one last chance to reclaim responsibility. Witnessing all these stories and many others, I see the reckless squandering of talent and the ceaseless plunder of a sector of a generation set up to give up like, fuck it, and be locked away together to drag each other down like crabs in a bucket. If there's a slim chance that mastery of words can set him free, and set him on a path to greater confidence in their ability, and maybe make him see how they can claim responsibility take on responsibility, then this is my responsibility. Responsibility for self-study developing an awareness of one's connection to everything and the duties that are inherent in this life we're given to our family, our community, this land we live on. To parlay the strength and the skills and the quick thinking, the improvisation, the speed and the instinctive abilities attained into a force for the greater good of a society that needs them to not fight with them or ignore them, but form some alliances and give them a vision of the future more appealing than constant villainy and model stability and never forget that the lost of us are still our responsibility i tried to see the light but i was
6: too lit
4: they said free the fight but i was too deep
6: they told me stand up straight but i was on the lean one last chance to reclaim responsibility
5: dysfunctional families father absence racism poor identities dysfunctional homes One thing that really sticks out for me when I'm analysing this type of thing is this one word about invisibility, invisible, what I find in my work is that most young people in our society are invisible, unseen, unheard, sure you've heard the saying before, it takes a village to raise a child and there's also another saying in that same school of thought that if young people don't feel a part of that village they will burn it down to feel its warmth. I'll say it one more time: If young people feel they are not part of our village, they will burn it down to feel its warmth.
4: This is definitely <laughs> the bleakest, by far and away. Any people might not even know my work, but um, I like to do like quite spiritually uplifting. Uh, rap Mm. uh, you know like heavy symphonic bass electronic music you know i like to i like to really get down with people and 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 get get quite hippie and and make give people feelings of of oneness and all this stuff um however i couldn't ignore this stuff so i had to i had to put it out and no i wouldn't say there's a the only bright side is that this is this is a real cry for help on behalf of Um, The youth that are in this situation, like I don't, I don't, I think Chuck D's lyrics back in the day, and and a lot of Tupac's and Biggie's lyrics back in the day were also a cry for help. Even you know some of them went very gangster, but I still think they were a cry for help. This trap music, in my opinion, is not a cry for help. It's like fully surrendered to the glorification of crime. (laughs) So, as a as a privileged thirty-seven-year-old out-of-touch white guy, you know, if I'm allowed to. I'm I'm trying to raise my hand and my voice on behalf of of young people in this situation that that we need to pay attention to this. Uh, we need to have compassion. We need to criticise the Herald Sun and the and the Channel Nine News for their tub thumping and their fear mongering. But we also need to analyse this. We don't need. To, we can't sit back and th- pretend it's all okay. If we're progressing in the right direction and crime really is reducing, which I have no reason to disbelieve the statistics. There's more work to be done, and we all need to get involved. and And if there are problems in communities, um, they, they're they're not unique to one community. And we all need to get involved with all those communities, and we need to um, offer our our help and our compassion because the alienation of of you, of youth um, in our country is a serious issue. And if they if they feel alienated because of racial lines or because of poverty or because of um, drug addiction or because of broken families this is not a problem that um, is going to just stay in some corner and even if it did that would be terrible because it affects the people who are also in that community so we cannot ignore it, we can't be arrogant and assume that the Herald Sun is just completely lying, there's a nugget there's a kernel of truth there and and we have to, it's our responsibility to help out This land was once teeming with my species of tree. We stood ground, proud with elders all around, shaving the glade. A fortunate orchard, a garden of Eden. Whenever old growth fell, it was replaced with a seedling. Seeking the light that suddenly seeped in. Growing to saplings, drawing energy from dawn to the evening. Breathing in light, seeing decades of time flash by. as slow-mo images grow, so intricate photosynthesis. Suddenly, one of these centuries, one of these images shows the arrival of unfamiliar menaces. A nemesis fitted with axe and saw, making sap fall to forest floor. And milling the flesh of us, stripping the infinite, hacking and slashing our land, removing the roots the ancient truth to make farmland where foreign crops are grown and natives never sown. This desert used to be our forest home, now turned into a death zone.
6: Give us us underneath, away from the light, in everlasting.
4: What could be birthed from this scorched earth? How could the seed ever breathe? Develop leaves, branches, seeds and roots of its own When my better nature was never nurtured in an abusive home Before birth I lay in the dirt as a potential tree Awaiting my chance to germinate from a seed Oh, the leaves I would grow, the things I would see But when I burst through the earth they labelled me a noxious weed Poisoned me and my kind with glyphosate Forced us to grow too quick at a higher rate Until our stems couldn't take the applied weight We cried for aid and they just multiplied the Yelling, you gon' gonna die today. But we survived today. Every attempting to kill us, label us villains and chain us in prisons. They blind to the strife of this life, so we multiply twice as high and strike with spines. This They're is the day of the triffles.
6: Keep us underneath, away from the light, in everlasting light.
4: This perpetual savage, we eternally damage me. The bad apple never falls far from the family tree. Counting cherry sees to see what I could ever be. Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. This perpetual savage, we eternally damage me. The bad apple never falls far from the family tree. Counting cherry sees to see what I could ever be. Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief.
6: And now we're breaking through the dark
4: feel like there's a chance here it might seem to people that it's that it's hopeless or that the the forces arrayed arrayed against us are just too powerful um but um i think that there i think that this this country above all in the in the um let's say anglo ex-anglo imperial countries has one of the best chances of of coming good and and really being a being a figurehead for for how to do it
0: the album is jail Bars. that 's uh australian jail g a o l uh, and it is available on your band camp That's right. uh, the website hugo ferrant f a w r a n t dot com you can find all the information uh, there um i mean you've been, been involved with so many projects uh over the years uh, one that people might be familiar with is the uh is the rap news project and uh, you you personally i I've always found you to be a quite inspiring uh, person whenever I've seen you performing, um, and I think a lot of other people feel that way as well. So um, congratulations on the new album. And again... um some of the uh, uh, proceeds from the sale of the album will be going to uh, a few different charities. Uh, are you able to mention a few of the charities? I can
4: mention the ones that are confirmed as yep. we're
0: recording this. I'm yep. hoping
4: more will be signed on by the time it's released. But um, yeah, so firstly, uh, Melbourne City Mission, who I think do amazing work around education and, and um, helping uh, children who've fallen on uh, hard times, uh, ended up in homelessness, or ended up um, excluded from school for whatever reason to get back into education and and get life skills Uh, I think they do phenomenal work so so I'm donating a portion to them Uh, the other organisation that's signed on so far is the I'm going to hope I get this right the South Sudanese Australian Youth United um, who are doing work specifically around, as as the name suggests, the South Sudanese community, with engaging with youth, um, forming uh, sports uh, programs and also educational programs. Again, life skills, but just a bit more targeted. Uh, there's a couple of other organisations that I want to get on board as well, and and you know each of them will receive a, a portion of every of every album's pro, uh, proceeds. And um, the goal is that the reason I'm donating to so many. Or that my goal is to donate to so many, is that um, this is multifaceted. I, if, if we focused on only one community, which the right-wing press is doing at the moment, um, we would we would miss the broader issue. So, so I had to, I think, um, get f- as as many as three or four to donate to to try to get a spread of an accurate spread of where the attention needs to be to be um, put, mm. and and also to give. Props to give respect to those organizations that are already doing the work. Like, I'm just rapping about it. Um, These guys are already in the trenches, already doing the work, already achieving incredible results. They just need more support. They need more money. um, And they need, you know, people to to get stuck in. I, I say there's work to be done. These people are doing the work. Uh, let's let's help them out.
0: Right? And he is, the, I think that that's a, a perfect message to, uh, to to end on as well, because those are the people that we need to remember. We need to t- turn away uh, from stories from people that don't know what they're talking about, and turn to these people that do know what they're talking yeah. about, that are working directly with the affected communities, um, th- totally. and can and can actually make positive change. Exactly. Tingo, thanks for coming into 3CR. My pleasure. It's awesome to be here.
4: What a great institution. Much respect to 3CR and all its listeners.
5: Sometimes we as members of society, we only respond to the symptoms, but we don't ever look at the root causes of what causes individuals to become what they are. So sometimes we need to go back to issue to find out, well, what is the root? What are the key things in society that is causing things or causing people to behave in a range of different ways?
3: Hugo Ferrant there with his new album. That was a great piece, Nick. Good to hear an insight into the work that's gone in there. And again, to download it if,
0: uh, if you are interested, I think it's $8 at Bandcamp. Uh, look up Hugo the Poet, and some of that money will be going towards uh, one of those organisations. And I know he's also looking into uh, donating to a couple of other organisations that are working uh, with younger people
3: and disadvantaged people in our community. So it be interesting. You're tuned to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast.
4: 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor the New International Bookshop for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton.
3: And up now we have Kevin Russell on the line. Kevin Russell has some strong family ties to William Cooper. He's the great-grandson of the pioneering Indigenous fella who fought to establish the Day of Mourning back in 18. Thirty-eight on the 26th of Jan, and this year marks the 80th anniversary of that plight. But, uh, Kevin, are you there? You also work for VACA, the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency. Um, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, pleasure,
3: Patty, Thanks for having me, mate. Um, it's great to hear your voice. I understand that you're super busy this time of year and you've got a lot going on. Yes,
2: yeah, it's always a busy time of the year with um, the 26th of January just around
3: the corner. Yeah. It's
2: um, a very significant day
3: for our people. Big time. I was hoping to firstly hear about um, your family ties to the great man, William Cooper. I know you'd get peppered a lot about this, but for some listeners um, who haven't heard about William Cooper, um, do you want to tell us just a little bit how you remember your great-grandfather or how you've come to remember him? Certainly,
2: um, William was one of our great activists. William was born in 1860 and passed in 1941. He saw a lot of changes in his time, but um, my grandmother often shared the stories. My grandmother was Sally Cooper and um, William was her father. So yes, I'm a great grandson. And uh, my grandmother often shared many stories of her father and um, the work that he did. So and I didn't really take a lot of that stuff on board until later in life when I sort of um, learned a bit more about myself. But yeah, William um, left Cumra, Cumra Gunja, um, a mission up on the Murray River around Barmer, Way and um, come to Melbourne to... Found what was then the Australian Aborigines League with a number of other elders of the day, and um, take up the plight of our people for um, the survival of our people. And um, so he was uh, very active for most of his life, um, campaigning and writing letters to prime ministers and and dignitaries in, in seeking support for um, yeah the survival of our people and. Um, As you said, 1938, um, he went to Sydney to help with the Day of Mourning protest with the uh, Aborigines Progressive Association in Sydney and their leaders in Jack Patton and Bill Ferguson. And together they, with a number of other um, of our elders, they um, staged what was known as the Day of Mourning protest as... uh, As Australia celebrated 150 years of colonisation, he, along with those leaders, said we have nothing to celebrate and and that to coincide with that celebration that um, was happening for Australia in general, uh, they staged what was known as the day of mourning protest in Sydney, yeah.
3: Mm. And how do you see this legacy being carried on today um, in the present state of affairs?
2: well, I suppose um, when William came to Melbourne and founded the Australian Aborigines League, it was the first sort of political uh, association, um, Aboriginal organisation, and it, it sort of led, paved the way, and we have a number of community orgs out there now doing great work in all areas, health education, and, you know, closing the gap. So, yeah, the legacy is there, and... Uh, many people are uh, doing lots of fine work in our community, trying to improve outcomes for for our people in general and in all those key areas, you know, employment, as I say, education, health, and, um, yeah, um, taking our rightful place in the community, I
6: imagine.
2: Mm. So um, I certainly try to do my bit and have been involved in a number of, a number of commemorations and celebrations and reenactments um, to to try and honour William and and those other elders that paved the way for us today.
3: Mm. You definitely tied in there, and you have been doing some great work yourself, Kev. Um, my brother's lucky enough to work with you, and he's told me a bit about the prison project that is um, something that you've created and now work through VACA. Could you tell us a little? Well, the title of that and how that program works
2: sure mate and um, good morning lucky if you're listening <laughs> um, yeah mate uh, I have been working with VACA for a number of years in many different areas and probably the last 10 years with the stolen generation arena and um, that led me to visiting a lot of prisons to talk to our men and uh, more recently um uh, with the Royal Commission into institutional abuse, um, I was speaking to a lot of men who experienced lots of abuse in care, and probably had a lot to do with where they find themselves now. And um, I think, as the commission wound up, I realised that you know the jails are full of our men, and um, and that not everyone had been abused, and those who who didn't. Couldn't come forward to the royal commission. Was still asking me for cultural programs within the prison system. So I took some of those, those um, learnings on board and went away and and sort of wrote a program which is called Beyond Survival. And um, yeah, was able to get some funding through Corrections Victoria to to roll this program out. It's it's been running twelve months now and. Um, getting some great outcomes and men are really engaged in it and grateful for the opportunity to have cultural programs within a prison system written and delivered by Aboriginal men I have a team of three that um, travel across the state to engage with our men who are incarcerated and we spend three days with those men and and really honour their stories and their journeys and try to help Reconnect them to their own communities, families, and their culture. And, um, it's really going well. It's going extremely well. And, um, we're off to another facility next week to, for the first one of this year. So it's been a privilege working with these men, and I'm learning a lot. It's, it's, um, it's a two way thing where I, I continue to learn, um, as much as um, we're able to help the men. We are learning so much along the way ourselves, yeah.
3: Mm. You must learn a lot, and it sounds like you've got a great pair of ears between the head there.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, look, and, it, and it's a narrative-based uh, program, Paddy, where it's all story-based, which is so culturally appropriate, and um, so we really like to get the men to unpack what we call a dominant story or the dominant problem story, which... Comes from that dominant race, that dominant, um, the dominant story that we live in. And, um, we know beneath that there is another story and what we call a preferred story. And and we get the men to, to really think about what that preferred story is and, and that their problem story doesn't define them. Um, it really sort of opens a door and plants a seed of hope that men can change their lives and, um, and that um, in so many cases, most of these men are disconnected themselves from um, from their families and communities, and, and we see that as a result of, of history and invasion, the policies that were put upon their grandparents and great-grandparents, and, and we see the connection there as to why a lot of our men find themselves in the place that they are today, so... There's certainly a parallel and a connection to everything that we talk about within the community, um, that, that affects these men. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, as I say, it's an honor and a privilege to, to visit the prisons and talk to these men and, um, and honor their own journeys and stories and, and, yeah, try and plant that seed of hope that there, there is, there is another way and that they do have another story that uh, is yet to be written.
3: Mm. Yeah, that sounds very important to be allow people the space to honour their story and unpack a lot of the things that may have been put on top of them and, as you say, that overarching narrative um, that exists.
2: Um, yeah, absolutely.
1: Patty? Yeah, Kevin, it's Judith here, and uh, I'm just wondering um, where the men come from. Are they mainly from Victoria or do they come from all over Australia? <laughs>
2: Yes, so men are from all over Australia, predominantly uh, within the prisons in Victoria. They are uh, Victorian Aboriginal people, but certainly with the transition of our that transient nature of our people, we come across a lot of men who may have been removed and ended up in Victoria and then maybe have committed a crime here and are serving time here and disconnected from their own communities wherever they may be across Australia. Uh, one of my co-facilitators is a strong Nuringery man from South Australia, and um, he's yes. been a great help because we have come across a lot of men from his country as well, and we've been able to join the dots there and connect families and begin that journey of family tracing and, and, and reconnecting, so... Yeah, yeah, they're definitely from all over
3: the all over Australia. Mm. And Kev, I understand the twenty sixth is also as a special day for you in a lot of ways, and a special day for a lot of people around you. Isn't it your birthday?
2: Yeah, it is. Oh, uh, happy uh, birthday! we no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks. It's, it's, yeah, must- not a day. Mm. It's not a day that I celebrated. Uh, too often during my life, mm. and as I say, it was a day of mourning for our people. So, always had very mixed, very mixed emotions on the day. And, um, but I suppose in more in recent years, I've come to understand that it's okay for me to be happy on that day in some way. But I still need to fulfil all my obligations. Mm. Yeah, like, i can
1: understand your dilemma um, but i guess uh, one thing to celebrate is the, ex- the really terrific work that you do and the great advocacy and uh, yeah still so much more work to do i'm sure that that weighs with you too
2: yeah i appreciate that dude thank you very much yeah i um i like to um celebrate it with the important people in my life today and and being my family and children but um as we know there's Lots happens on the day, and I do get called being born on that day and the significance of the day of mourning. And um, so for me, yeah, I must still do those things on that day. That That's the priority, and uh, nothing will change on this Friday. Um, mm. There's a number of community engagements that need to be honoured, and, um, and I look forward to being active in, in the community on the day.
3: mm I'm sure you will you've given me a little rundown uh, yesterday evening of your busy schedule, kev, and so we really do appreciate you um, giving us your time here at 3CR to tell us and update us on your work and also to tell us a little bit about your grandfather, or great-grandfather. Pardon me. thanks so much.
2: Now, as I say, a privilege uh, privilege, Patty, and appreciate people reaching out and it's, you know we can reach your listeners and help tell this story and you know, there's a, there's a lot that our people out there don't really know and understand and um, so for another part is just educating and, and just passing on information so that people can make informed decisions when um, when asked about the big question that's um, out there at the moment, the change of the date mm. um, and the resistance to that and um, How can you make a decision on something that you're not fully aware of or understand? So the more that people are aware and understand, uh, the more uh, informed decision you can make. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and reach out to your listeners.
3: Not at all. Would you direct any listeners who would like to find out more about, say, the day of mourning or anything else that's happening on on the 26th?
2: Well, there's a number of events happening in Melbourne with our march as usual for 11 o'clock from Parliament House and um, um, there's another couple of community events that I'll be attending, but certainly online there's lots of information, you know, all across the media at the moment, but um, if you could just Google day of mourning, you'll learn so much more about how that came about and it was a, towards the end, um, I think the great-grandfather was, Seventy-eight in nineteen thirty-eight when this happened. So there'd been sixty years or seventy years of activity prior to that, and, uh, and that included the petition to a, to the king and um, marching to the first prime minister and um, a yeah. number of other things. So
3: and it's well archived as well, isn't it, Kev?
2: Yes, it is. Yeah, you know, very the, accessible. The, yeah. So yeah, information in archives and libraries and AATs in Canberra. Um, there's a number of uh, places where people can go to find information. Um, there's a great book that lists a lot of the work of William and the Australian Aborigines League called Thinking Black, written by Bain Atwood and Andrew Marcus. It, it has lots of information in it about the day of mourning and all the other activities preceding so. If anyone wants to get a copy of that, I'm not sure exactly where, but the Curry Heritage Trust in Melbourne would, would be a good place to start.
3: Definitely. Well, thanks so much, Kev, for all your information and your sharing of story. Good luck with work today and the rest of the organisation um, and also your personal organisation for the days coming up.
2: Thank you very much, Barry. And as I say, a privilege to talk to you and your listeners. And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, Time
3: to get to work. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Kev. Uh, again, thank you, Paddy.
2: Have a good day,
3: mate. All right, you too. You. That was Kevin Russell, an inspiring, strong man, community man who works at VACA, leading the program Beyond Survival. Um, he's also the great-grandson of William Cooper, a pioneering hero who fought, as we were hearing towards the end of the interview there for the day of mourning on the 26th of Jan, this Time last year, 80 years ago. Um, you're tuned to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast.
2: you got to remember, NAIDOC's a special day for us, fellas. As a reminder, we are.
7: Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's
2: only live prison broadcast. I am
3: a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present.
2: NAIDOC means a lot to me, for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about
8: our rights you can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcast.
6: Happy, Happy NAIDOC! The social safety net in Australia is being eroded by government cutbacks to essential services and also bullying tactics, as we've seen recently with the Centrelink robo-debts for just one example. This is a public service announcement. Over the Wall wants to offer you some simple tools to fight back and defend yourself against a grossly, unfair and aggressive system a system that penalises people already disadvantaged by poverty and significant health conditions. Tune in every Monday at 7.50am on Monday Bricky for Over the War. Your
3: You're joined here with Judith Nick and Paddy and up next we have Hussein to talk about tech diplomacy and I suppose world politics and world diplomacy. Um... Usain, are you there? You're a civil engineer and, at the, and a program leader um, at the Future Urban Smart Mobility um, for City Research at the Swinburne University. Um, thanks for joining us. And you are coming into us about the recent developments of France appointing a tech ambassador to the Silicon Valley. Uh, yes, thank
7: you for
3: having me. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, now, what caught our attention was to see that governments are now outlaying resources and a lot of attention to chum up quite publicly with tech companies and give them the credence of a diplomat in a city space to work in and amongst there and establish relationships and and policy, I suppose. Um, what have you been seeing? You've been working in and around this space and have a background... In civil engineering, what are you seeing as these developments? As France and us, I think it's Denmark also lead the way with their tech diplomacy.
7: Yeah, uh, thank you. So we, uh, our research is focused around um, smart cities and uh, how we make our cities, um, you know, sustainable for the, for future generations. And uh, part of that is the use of technology, of course, um, which is coming increasingly into uh, our cities and urban areas, but. In this particular case, it's, um, um, you know, France and Denmark um, sending, you know, um, seasoned diplomats, uh, if you like, and rather than sending them to the world, you know, capital, they're actually sending them to Silicon Valley to, um, to engage and rub shoulders with uh, these uh, tech giants. Um, as, you know, the, the foreign minister of um, uh, Denmark mentioned, uh, some of these companies are as large as, um, uh, you know, countries uh, in terms of their economic power. Um, um, you know, like um, the the amount of cash that Apple had in two thousand sixteen was more than two thirds of the global GDP. Um, Google injected something like two hundred and twenty billion U.S. dollar alone uh, in the U.S. If you like in two thousand sixteen, so they are very big players um, foreign policy uh, awarded Diplomat of the year to um, uh, google uh, for their work on um, you know uh, empowering citizens around the world uh, mm. and so forth so i think decision makers around the world are, are maybe waking up and taking notes um, that we need to engage with these companies understand you know, what drives them, uh, besides money, uh, understand, uh, you know, what are their visions, what, what mm. are the products they're developing, and how, uh, you know, they're going to uh, influence, you know, society, if you like. So it is a recognition, uh, not only of the important role of technology, you know, in, in improving the quality of life and so forth, but also how um, diplomacy needs to adapt yes. uh, in, a, you know, in a changing world.
3: Yeah, it's very true. And how do you see these um, developments affecting Australia as we speak about technology right now? We're struggling to catch you fully and clearly at the moment, saying if you could maybe speak a little bit closer to the mic or it could, I mean, to the um, earpiece, it could just be our technology here at 3CR. But how do you see on a a wider scale, at a national scale for Australia, um, at a policy level approaching this tech diplomacy and then also at a major city level, so, in your article, you also touch on that cities are becoming quite um sovereign entities in a way as they yeah. house technological companies
7: that's right so um i mean we're we're seeing some um, some developments around the world where where cities are bypassing um, you know um, the the governments of their own nations and uh, and doing things which are maybe not aligned. Uh, or different so you know an example is uh, climate change. many countries around the world have have not taken action, but you see cities actually taking action at a local level, and uh, some of them are making a difference. I mentioned the c forty coalition, which is you know a group of more than now maybe ninety cities collaborating um in in australia uh, I think within the smart cities now we have i think a uh, uh, you know, some um, uh, within the government there are some people looking after sustainable cities, etc. But we haven't seen anything uh, that resembles what uh, Denmark and um, and France are doing. And um, these are quite recent appointments. Um, so I think it's a wait and see uh, for us to learn what they, you know, what are the possibilities, um, what can come out of these uh, diplomatic uh, negotiations with the tech companies. And I think. Um, if governments and decision makers around the world see that you
1: know there are benefits, uh, they would follow suit. Do, do you feel, in some ways, that um, these uh, groups are kind of take, feel, taking up space that government has actually abandoned, like policies that governments are moving away from in some cases that they should be doing? I mean, climate change is—is is it kind of? A, Another level of citizen activism, or is it um, not so grassroots as that?
7: Um, and I, I think that's, uh, that's a very important point because they are doing things that governments are not doing. I mean, even even if you look at uh, things like um, reducing congestion in um, in uh, in cities, um, uh, a lot of the initiatives around the world are actually coming from from uh, you know mayors and uh, uh, cities. An example is the congestion charging in London, for example. Um, I remember reading then Tony Blair, the prime minister, was quite suspicious that it might be successful. And then after the, the mayor then uh, introduced it in London and the people got on board and they saw the benefits and it was made clear to them how it would work, how it would work and produce benefits. Uh, people uh, came along and again with climate change um you know uh, it reminds me also you you know you when you're travelling around the world you see you know i love new york i love paris i love london uh, these t- shirts you not not too often you see people wearing i love i love the u s or i love the u k people um associate them that's very interesting with <laughs>
3: Yeah, and on that note, do you think people people do wear, say, an Apple's an Apple tech company? They, <laughs> they wear a t shirt a little bit along that lines. But how do you see a tech firm like Apple um, approaching and responding to this new public government interest in their firms? Because how did how do they negotiate that they're publicly listed and they they have a obligation to continue to make money for their shareholders how do they then and enter the the
7: social space and i think they will continue to do that but they will use their um, their their influence where they can and i think people will start to maybe to push them to use it towards the the social good uh, besides you know uh, i mean you know, they're making money anyway if you like but um um one of the questions i i raised in my article about the future is um, you know will we see a point in the near future where google and apple and um, and intel and microsoft start to appoint their own diplomatic uh representatives to uh to cities around the world uh, it's an interesting state um, i i you know they they realize that uh, they are uh influential and um, they do a lot of uh, you know things in the public good um but it would be interesting to see mm. whether they elevate the discussion
3: to the EU level. It will be interesting. Australia still doesn't um, tax Apple, in my opinion, humble opinion, well enough, yeah. really, to sell their products here. But it'll That's be interesting, right. as they do, and they have got a lot of power and executive power within policy making, how this space yeah. develops. We have one more question, and then we'll have to say goodbye. But thank you for joining us, Nick, here.
0: Yes, uh, Hussein, thank you very much for uh, talking to us about this. Uh, it's a very interesting issue. And I'm uh, rolling around in my head, I'm wondering if we've done this sort of thing before with other uh, businesses that have uh, really changed the uh, entire landscape of how we do things. So I'm talking about businesses that might have uh, grown during the Industrial Revolution, uh, especially the sorts of um, energy businesses that exist today and hold a huge amount of power. Um, and I'm wondering if we've tried to do this before and instead of having. Um, something that was a more ideal situation for everyone, what we might end up with instead of a, uh, a diplomat, which sounds very uh, democratic, we might end up with uh, somebody that's more uh, of your crony capitalist kin, uh, makes buddies with the right people in, in, in the right party, and and figures out how to, you know, because as we, Patty was just mentioning, a lot of businesses are looking to um, reduce, uh, sorry, grow, grow their bottom line and, and reduce the amount of uh, expenditure they're putting out. Out there and would would wouldn't that be the same for one of these uh, tech diplomats? Try to reduce regulation around their industry and make sure that they remain incredibly both powerful and profitable.
7: Uh, that's that's also a possibility. And um, and uh, as I said, you know these are new appointments. It would be interesting to see uh, what these you know France and Denmark. Uh, uh, this new take on foreign policy, what does it in- entail exactly? They're looking into how they can uh, secure their own economies as well and their own uh, businesses. Cybersecurity is uh, featuring high on the agenda. I hope we don't see a repeat of uh, past practices and that this hopefully with technology can chart a new path, especially for, for cities uh, into the future.
3: Mm. And a new path, you're right, is saying does need to be charted. Let's hope it is a good one. It's not housing us very well at the moment. Um, if people would like to, if people would like to check out your article, it's in the conversation. It is well worth a read. You've put some very thoughtful links in there for people to follow and get into the conversation. Thank you so much for joining what, us. What's here. the title of the article? Quickly.
7: Uh, tech, uh, <laughs> uh, tech
2: diplomacy. Tech diplomacy. Excellent. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Nice and simple, beautifully catchy for this age that we live in. Thanks, Hussain, but the content's very interesting and worth your time.
7: Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. See ya.
3: June to 3 Wednesday breakfast. That was Hussain Dia. He's the chair of the civil engineering and program leader at Smart City Research, the Institute of Swinburne University and Technology.
1: And um, coming up next, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Amelia Enns. Uh, she's a lecturer in environmental management at Macquarie University. And uh, she works in collaboration with a number of Aboriginal ranger groups in Arnhem Land in northern New South Wales to develop cross-cultural environmental monitoring techniques, so I'm just already overwhelmed with the technology because, <laughs> you know, I'm not, not a big tech person. But um, last year she co-led the nukuru study Black Country um, project or research team, and they won the Eureka Prize for Innovation in Citizen Science. And, thus, yes, you know, citizen science is such a, a great thing. And um, she recently published an article in The Conversation. So, yeah, The Conversation giving us lots of great uh, stories here. But I started by asking her how she became involved in cross-cultural ecological research because I really didn't know a lot about it.
8: I did my undergraduate degree and PhD in weed science. Um, When I finished my PhD, I started a postdoc at uh, Charles Darwin University. So I moved from Wollongong, where I did my PhD, to Darwin. To continue doing weed research, but... um, When I sort of started to spend some time in the Northern Territory, I really started to understand that I didn't really have a a proper grasp of Australia's real history, that I hadn't really been taught Australia's history at school. Yes. (laughs) Um, And I'm referring to our Aboriginal history. So I started to become more interested in that and started to think, well, that I could combine the Western scientific training that I'd been gathering through my university studies and start working with Aboriginal people to get some better sort of understanding and ways of managing um, country that you know reflected their deep knowledge of what's been going on over the years. It's still ecology because you know ecology is the study of interactions of stuff in nature. It's just sort of adding more of the human element into the studies and thinking more about indigenous interactions with the environment. So we still study weeds and invasive um, animals as well and look at their impacts on the environment, which is what I did before, Um, but just adding the Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous values of those species and those interactions.
1: Tell me about the project that you won the 2017 Eureka Prize for Innovation in Citizen Science for.
8: The project's called the NUCA We Study Black Country Research. translates into English into the the NUCA which is the community in Northern Australia, Northern Territory, um, we study the country, the research team that we've developed. So it's um, a team um, that I'm a part of, as well as elders from Nooka and young people in the ranges there, the Wormungi rangers. So we've been working together for 10 years around the community in southeast Arnhem Land, doing a range of different collaborative sort of research projects.
1: Can you describe some of them in a bit more detail?
8: Yeah, so some of the projects we've been working on include cross-cultural biodiversity surveys, which everybody loves. That involves myself and community members and rangers going out doing surveys of mainly animals we've been focusing on throughout South East Darnam Land, doing surveys using sort of standard Western scientific techniques, so different traps and trapping techniques, as well as Aboriginal ways of looking for animals, so just by searching, following tracks and holes and scats and things like that. So we look for the animals and then we record their names and um, any knowledge about them using both knowledge systems as well. So Aboriginal knowledge, deep knowledge of some of the species. But unfortunately, as many of you listeners and yourself, I'm sure are aware, a lot of the knowledge has eroded over time since, well, the last 200 years since colonisation. So people in the community are very keen to maintain the knowledge they've got but also build some of that knowledge that they've
7: lost as well.
1: Yes, and and I imagine there was a citation for the award, for the Eureka Prize. What kinds of things did it acknowledge that uh, this project had done?
8: Well, we've worked with pretty much everybody in the community, directly or indirectly, which is a community of a 1,000 people, Aboriginal, remote-living Aboriginal people. We've identified a couple of new species to science. We've found new populations of Threatened species that hadn't, uh, that weren't known to science before. That's really um, exciting. Like, and animals that, that the community members themselves hadn't seen before. So they were very excited to see them, and then they started talking about them. Like, this, um, for example, the Leichhardt's grasshopper, which is a, a stunning orange and blue coloured, quite large grasshopper. It's got a very specific plant that it eats, Pteridium. It's in the mint family and um, we were out on a survey out in um, sort of the Stone Country area, and I saw the plant, and knowing the association that it had with this grasshopper, we started looking for it, and then lo and behold, there it was. So that was the most um, southeast population of the grasshopper that's now known. That must the have been other so exciting. It was extremely exciting. The rangers were very excited. One of the rangers, he's a like 40, late 40s-year-old man, when we were driving back, I saw um, some grasshoppers in the vehicle and I was like, well, How'd those grasshoppers get in here? And he said, Oh, yeah, I've just stuffed my pockets full. So I want to take them home and show the kids because he hadn't seen them before and the kids had never obviously seen them. So he was really excited and wanted to take them home and spread the word, which was just perfect. That's what it's all about.
1: So now I'm just going to yeah. come back to the, the article in the conversation in which you talk about the Aboriginal Ranger programs. What is the Aboriginal Ranger program? Well,
8: the Aboriginal Ranger program, it's been going sort of officially with government support since 2007. But as the elders that I work with would say, they've been rangers for over 40,000 years. The the sort of more formal Aboriginal ranger program started in 2007 through um, the Australian government's working on country programs. Also note Aboriginal rangers, they're also um, employed through just the usual kind of ranger channels, so national parks rangers. But the Australian government did develop this um, Indigenous Specific ranger programs for Aboriginal people to work on their country in their communities, so it's out, usually outside of national parks.
1: You said in your article that that there have been a number of achievements of the Indigenous rangers programs.
8: Many, many achievements and things that it's sort of hard to document really and and understand the complexity of the advantages. But um, as you can imagine, there's obviously the direct employment. For so the financial um, benefits, as the benefits to the country, having Aboriginal people on very, especially remote but also regional and urban parts of Australia on their own country, um, reconnecting with their country. So there's the cultural, the spiritual reconnection and the recognition of Australia's like, real history. Plus the health benefit of people being on country, walking around, doing culturally meaningful jobs. So the the Australian government program has expanded and continues, hopefully, to expand. um, But also some of the states and territories have um, kicked in some funding as well for Indigenous rangers in their jurisdictions. So that's when we started looking into the um, the Queensland Indigenous Land and Sea Management Program where where they've um, funded... I think they've got 75, 76 rangers that they're currently funding through their system, through the state government system.
1: Oh, great.
8: Um, yeah, so there's a range of different ways that Indigenous rangers across Australia are supported. Australian government, the state and territory governments, even through some of the land councils, and some other Aboriginal organisations get funding to just to fund their own ranges. Different avenues for support for the program, and that's, I guess, testament to the value
1: of it. It, it sounds is, like it's been recognized or, across many government levels and also in yeah. communities. Have you got some information about what the sea rangers do?
8: I used to work with the Jelk Rangers in Manangura in Northern Territory. They do patrolling, they're looking for illegal fishing, they collect the drift net. So oh, fishing nets
1: so good.
8: They've been thrown overboard in, in Asia that, you know, animals get caught up in. They do monitoring of dugongs, turtles. What
1: an amazing program.
8: Yeah, I guess the hard part is documenting the benefits and the outcomes. Yes. um, And sort of proving those outcomes, it can be quite difficult. The money
1: to do the evaluation, it it can be quite costly. Yeah.
8: I guess a lot of people, including myself, are working with Aboriginal rangers to improve sort of monitoring and reporting capacity. That's where we're sort of working at the moment generate more evidence of the benefits um, to lobby for more support.
1: So what would you like to see happen in the future?
8: Ongoing um, support for the ranger program. The government sort of does two to three year funding cycles, which is fantastic that they, it's been going for 10 years but some longer term support would allow more strategic development of the programs absolutely
1: um, yes yeah
8: at the local and national level as well you know
1: so would you like um, like five-year program or 10-year funding would be preferable 10 would
8: be great wouldn't it
1: wouldn't it just yeah, we all know. <laughs> but the, the election cycle is the problem i think isn't it yeah
8: that's the same old story, but hopefully, you know, considering you know the ongoing and you know quite traumatic um, impact colonisation on Aboriginal people, that we should be able to come up with um bipartisan approach to like, long-term support. It's a fantastic program, and just yeah, the more support, the better.
1: Yeah, really a great program to get behind. That was Dr Amelia Enns, and uh, she was about to hop into a car and head north to work with uh, four young women who were Aboriginal rangers um, in northern New South Wales. So, uh, yeah, great she made some time for us.
3: Mm, Unreal program, that. Um, Up next, we've got someone coming on, but before that, we've got a few things to get through, but you are tuned in to Wednesday Breakfast here at 3CR Radio. (laughs)
2: G'day, this is Jacob from Friday Rave. If the week's politics have left you wondering whether it's you or the rest of the planet that's gone completely and utterly bonkers, join us at 5 o'clock each and every Friday for a Friday Rave here on 3CR, where we'll do our best to reassure you that it is actually you, and us. A Friday Rave, bringing the 5 o'clock drinks debrief to you here on Community Radio 3CR. Communication Mixdown.
8: The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media.
2: And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us.
8: From social media to citizen journalism.
2: To the logo on the front of your favourite t-shirt.
4: It's all part
8: of the Communication Mixdown.
3: Each week, Thursday, 6 to
8: 6.30. Right here on 3CR.
3: that new show Friday Rave sounds very interesting. That was a good promo by James. Um, you're tuned to Jacob, I think ja- it
6: was. It? Oh, yeah, we've got a James Jacob,
3: coming James. up though. Yeah, um, <laughs> James, that's, you're that's famous my, today. My <laughs> inner workings slowly frazzling here on Wednesday. Done some of my tea? Yeah, maybe. Some tea. <laughs> Thanks, Nick.
1: So look, I you know it's great to welcome um, James Trezise to the show today and. Uh, Late last year, the federal government released a a draft, Strategy for Nature, and I know that will warm everyone's heart here this morning (laughs) that the government's concerned and has a strategy for nature out for consultation. And uh, an article published in The Age on the weekend described the document as uh, a bewilderingly juvenile 17 pages of utter pap. (laughs) Uh, embarrassingly weak and astonishingly devoid of vigour and a complete absence of any genuine hard-edged goals for conservation and furtherance of biodiversity. So James Trezise is here to now tell us a bit more about that. He's speaking to us today on behalf of the Places You Love Alliance, but I think he also, well, I know, he also is a policy analyst at the Australian Conservation Foundation. So welcome to 3CR Wednesday brekkie. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, it's great. And you're in Adelaide, I understand. Is it is it getting hot there? Uh, it's not
9: too hot at the moment, um, but it's early.
1: Yes, <laughs> yeah, true, true. It is. And a bit earlier than here in Melbourne, so double thanks. So, uh, James, can you just begin by telling us about the Places You Love Alliance? Sure. Well, the Places
9: You Love Alliance um, is one of the largest alliances of environmental organizations in Australia. We formed in 2011, uh, largely around the wine-backed national protection uh, that are afforded under our national environmental law, which is called the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. It's a bit of a mouthful. We just call it the EPBC Act. So so um, can you
1: just say, who are some of the organizations that are part of the Alliance? Just name a few. Yeah,
9: sure. So so obviously, um, the organization which I work for, which is the Australian Conservation Foundation, are also members of the Alliance. groups like uh, WWF Australia, uh, Environmental Justice Australia, um, the Wilderness Society, uh, yeah. Humane Society International. Um, I mean, uh, I, do these, uh, know, I do know. I do know
1: it's a huge list, and uh, of, and I would just encourage anyone who's interested to go to the Places You Love Alliance website, which I, I mean, it's a it's a, not a, a a huge website in terms of content, but what is there is very precise and clear and I just thought it was very good. So, um, yeah, so it's been going since 2011.
9: Yeah, so the way we've been, um, the way the campaign's been rolling out has been to uh, we originally entered the fight to to stop the windbacks of national protections. These were hard-fought gains from the 1980s and through the 1990s, beginning with the Franklin Dam and sand mining on Fraser Island. So the the role of the federal government in providing national protections for the environment, so providing national leadership is a really important one. And so the Places You Love Alliance was formed to make sure that role was maintained. Um, at the time, uh, the government uh, was looking to uh, devolve its powers uh, to you know, approve and regulate projects that would impact on things like World Heritage or threatened species and basically offload those to the states. And so we've been fighting almost an eternal battle since then to um, make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, In the meantime, though, we've been also um, looking at policy and what law reform should be and and, and now pushing for a new generation of national environmental laws that will actually protect Australia's environment and, and a suite of policies that go with that to ensure that we're not a world leader on things like extinction, which we are. It's yeah. It's quite a disappointing same, title to have.
1: Yeah, this, yeah. Yeah. So in some ways you, you're uh, working to fill a gap that the government has just vacated and, uh, to kind of keep those things on the agenda. It's so important. Now, uh, uh, you put out a press release, um, the Places You Love Alliance put out a press release, and you described Australia's strategy for nature, 2018 to 2030, as a global embarrassment. (laughs) So, I mean, I think we're already embarrassed here in the studio, but why is it a global embarrassment?
9: Yeah, sure. So I think it needs a bit of context. So the, the strategy that we were commenting on and that we put the media release out about uh, was one that um, replaced the strategy that was originally came into force in 2010. And it, it was called the National Biodiversity Conservation Strategy, again, another mouthful. Um, and the, the reason it's a global embarrassment is that that particular strategy is the Australian government's uh, mechanism or tool to implement our international obligations under the, convention, the, inter, the UN Convention on Biological Diversity. So it's a big international convention that we've, signed up to as a country. Uh, it has a series of targets and obligations under it. Um, we're one of 194 countries that sort have of signed up to that convention. It's one of the most signed on to international conventions in the world. And so they have a series of targets. Uh, and this policy is meant to be our domestic implementation plan for meeting those targets. Right. A previous po- and the previous policy had a series of measurable, concrete targets. And there were 10 targets in there, the 2010 version. And in 2015, the Australian government opened it up for review. And, you know, we, we all engaged in that process in good faith. You know, the environment groups uh, concerned individuals. And it's taken two years, taken two years to get to the point where we're at today, where a 100-page document with measurable targets came um, out as a 17-page doc- document with what I'd describe as roughly, um, you know, uh, non-measurable targets and aspirational goals, but nothing of any concrete value that we could um, hold up in an international forum and say, we're doing our bit. To, yeah, yes, I mean, I'm just progress. looking
1: at uh, goal one of this, um, you know, draft. Dra- draft so, so just can I clarify, so the original strategy is still in place, Australia's Biodiversity Conservation Strategy 2010 to 2030. Is that still in place until this one is possibly are not adopted
9: Theoretically yes yeah. but I would I would, almost, I would also argue that um, it's not necessarily being implemented either. so I think you know there's a secondary conversation to have there about well policy is there to shape and change the world that we live in. Yes. And if you're not going to actually implement the actions and funding and the reforms needed to implement policy, then it's just a bit of paper that sits on a shelf. And yes. I think we have that problem a lot in this country.
1: So the current policy, not talking about the draft, of the current one, Australia's Biodiversity Conservation Strategy, I think it had 10 targets, or measurable targets. Has it achieved any?
9: Yeah, so it had 10 targets. Anal- analysis by um, my colleagues over at Humane Society International, I did a very detailed analysis Took them a long time to do. Um, and that's publicly available for listeners who want to go through it. But um, they found that only one of those ten targets um, were met. But that one target that was met actually relates to the conversation we're having directly before this, which related to the employment and participation of Indigenous peoples in biodiversity conservation, and largely. That target was met through the implementation of funding and reforms. Isn't that, that to amazing? Indigenous, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that indigenous those two stories come
1: together. Yeah. yeah,
9: and the Indigenous Protected Areas, and so there is a met nexus. That is one of the most successful government programs that is going at the moment, and it, you know it has enjoyed bipartisan oh, support. Yes. As you per your previous listener, we campaign on that program as well. The Indigenous Range for Eight Needs. Long-term secure funding.
1: Um, yes, in, so, in, outside of
9: the political cycle. Absolutely. yeah
1: So, so with uh, uh, the Australian government achieving only one goal from the document that exists on biodiversity conservation, I guess they're wanting another one with no goals, so or no targets, if you like, immeasurable targets. So that, so, so I just now want to just come back to reading. You know, goal one of this strategy for nature, uh, which I think is kind of an example of what you're talking about. So, goal one. Incredibly incisive, as you'll see. We can all connect to nature in different ways and settings. We can visit a national park, we can picnic outdoors, we could walk on the beach. <laughs> and oh. uh, and go camping and enjoy our gardens. I mean, it can happen where we live, where we work, where we've vol- So that's goal one. or oh, that's not the whole of goal one. And goal one does have some objectives, I would have to say, in fairness. But as you've pointed out, James, there's no, <laughs> there's no. I mean, it really doesn't have much substance.
0: It sounds like a primary school project.
1: <laughs> but that, in fact, other people have made that that comment. Yeah. So so yeah. So I, I'm wondering. You know, mm. how can comp- this? And so, I just want to check. When did this document come out?
9: Uh, so I think that, that's also an interesting. So, this, this document came out on the Friday afternoon before Christmas Day, um, which is normally a time when no one is looking, um, mm. you know, at. Websites being updated, um, that type of thing, yeah.
1: Do you know what? what's quite sad is just before Christmas, or no, well, actually last week also we spoke to someone talking about changes to the rules that are, are governing, you know, Genet GMO products and very similar kind of thing. So this seems to be well, the government's way of not getting things done or not getting a response from the community. Yeah, so it came out, what, did you say Christmas Eve? Is that right? Did you say that?
9: Yeah, it came out on a Friday before
1: Christmas,
9: Friday okay. afternoon, the last, the last working day before Christmas, that's
1: right. Yeah. And uh, so, how long do people have to respond to this? So, yeah, the good thing is this is only a draft,
9: and I think that's the important thing, and the, the good thing for listeners to know is that there's capacity for anyone to engage, and so you just jump onto the Australian Government Environmental Department website, which is environment.gov.au, and you can go in and pretty, I think it's sitting on the front page, and you can through to this, and there's a, a form uh, to provide submissions, and submissions are open to all Australians um, uh, until around 16th of March, uh, 2018. So it was, uh, there's a few months there, and I think um,
1: they'll yeah, we'll we'll need a, to... a wider range of views coming into it. Yeah, we'll need we'll really need to get on to that. And and uh, James, unfortunately, our time is just about out. One other point I just make is that I noticed a disclaimer on the draft strategy, and that none of the organisations involved in writing it has claimed is endorsed it <laughs> or, or claimed responsibility for it. So you know, more and more <laughs> ridiculous, I think. Uh, uh, you know. So anyway, I won't I won't go any further because I know we do have also a couple of important announcements to make. James, thank you so sure. much for getting up early and talking to us here at uh, 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. No worries. Thanks
9: a lot for having me.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. It's, it's not unsurprising for governments to do, to do that sort of thing at all, is it? It's, of course it's,
1: not, but I'm just being naive, really, aren't I? <laughs> I,
0: I, I managed to find, um, I thought this uh, announcement by a police minister halfway through last year um, had just gone dead in the water and somebody went, no, 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 it's in this piece of legislation. It's in some obscure, nothing quite to do with what she was talking about legislation. It's just like a, a little amendment and it's being, um, uh, it's being called like a ticket scalping amen- uh, amendment, but it's for
3: something completely different. It's bizarre. They just do this on purpose. Yes. So okay. we need really there is advocacy work that can be done and change can be made even though the yeah, road well, uh, is quite long um, and one do of do those big days that we with, have oh, been sorry. seeing yes. changing is say abolish Australia Day or change the date or change the name to recognise something different or um, we'll get behind the 80 years of the anniversary of first day of mourning which was a protest called by William Cooper and many others um, we heard a great grandson speak of William Cooper today um, the hashtag is abolish Australia day 3CR will be live broadcasting from the from the rally so if you're at the back tune into 3CR you can hear the conversation happening live at the space in case you can't pick it up
5: Songs of our time, teachers of our let it be written in the maze. the survival of a culture is the reason that we made it
7: join 3CR for our invasion day broadcast on January 26th. Tune into 3CR between 11am and 4pm for our Treaty Now special broadcasts. We have survived, time, always was, always will be Aboriginal land and Aboriginal law.